a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. We're beginning a study of the last 17 verses of Romans chapter 1. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans while he was on his third missionary journey. Probably the year was 56 AD. He wrote it four years before he finally got to Rome himself under house arrest in the year 60 AD. When Paul wrote this, he was in Corinth. And he'd been thinking and praying a lot about the church in Rome. He was eager to get there. He did not personally establish that church. He had not personally even been to that church at all. And when we get to chapter 15 of Romans, Paul makes it clear that his plans included a trip to Rome on his way to Spain after he had delivered support to the impoverished Christians there in Jerusalem. We really don't know any details about how this church was established. Isn't that fascinating? It's a very significant church. We don't know how it was established. We do know that it had been there for some time, and there's at least a clue that it might have been already pretty strong in the Lord before Paul ever got there or even wrote this letter. In chapter 15, verse 23, Paul tells them that he had longed for many years to come to see them. So it certainly wasn't a brand new church. If it's been many years, he's been thinking about it. In chapter 15, verse 14, Paul describes them as filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another or to instruct one another. That makes them sound like a pretty mature church, doesn't it? Yeah, Paul encouraged them here in their maturity. It's at least possible that the church was established by believers who were saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. You remember that event? You remember Jews came from all over the empire to Jerusalem to celebrate these Jewish holy days. They tried to get there three times a year if they could back to Jerusalem. Well, Rome was by far the biggest city in the empire, and Rome had a large population of Jews. So there were likely many Jews from Rome who had come to Jerusalem when, somewhere around 30 AD, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. You read about that in Acts chapter 2. We have no idea how many of those people from the city of Rome were saved during that Pentecost time. But we do know that there were literally thousands who came to Christ then. We learn that in Acts. So it's reasonable to think many of them could have been residents from the city of Rome. If that's the case, then this church might have been in existence maybe 26 years when Paul wrote this letter to them. Isn't that interesting? In Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions 26 different people by name. And some Bible students think that that might be a clue that there were already 26 house churches in Rome who were led by these 26 people. That's just conjecture. We don't know. That's a pretty reasonable guess, I think. We also know that the Emperor Nero started persecuting the Christians in Rome in 64 AD after the great fire in Rome. Remember that? That would have been about eight years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. Four years after Paul finally reached Rome under house arrest the first time. Probably a couple of years after Paul's release. And we know there were a large number of Christians in Rome by then. because We know it because of the Roman historian Tacitus. Remember Tacitus? He was not a Christian. 
And he said that Christians in Rome at that time were, he called it an immense multitude, an immense multitude. In fact, what he actually said was that there was an immense multitude of Christians who were convicted and mocked and tortured and killed. Now, I want us just to review that timeline one more time. I've got a reason for this. In 56 AD, Paul wrote this letter that we call Romans. Wrote it from Corinth on his third missionary journey. Four years later, in 60 AD, Paul finally got to Rome, but he was under house arrest. Two years after that, 62 AD, he was released. Two years after that, in 64 AD, Nero set fire to the city and then blamed the Christians and began this intense time of persecution of the Christians in Rome. Two years after that, in 66 AD, Paul was re-imprisoned and beheaded. I just think it's good for us to be reminded from time to time that these things that we're talking about took place in the lives of real people, in real places, in real time. You see what I'm trying to say? This is history. It's not just a story we're talking about here. If we're not careful, we'll sometimes think of these events as Bible stories. We kind of pick that up when we're kids. You know, we, we study Bible stories and it, it almost comes across sometimes like it's not really actual history. So we need to remind ourselves every now and then of dates and places and the fact that this is historical stuff. The archaeologists and the historians have done a wonderful job of debunking the idea that these things are just made up stories. This is history, guys. Really happened. Well, with that bit of background to this letter of Romans, I want us to take some time to look at this very powerful passage that begins in chapter 1, verse 16, on to the end of that chapter. As we work through it, you'll notice that chapter 1, verses 16 through 32, sounds as if it were written for 21st century America. Very sobering, very blunt. Paul did not pull any punches. And guys, neither should we. We're living in a time when great courage and boldness and bluntness is required. Oh yes, with love and kindness, but not pulling any punches. Paul didn't, Jesus didn't, neither should we. But I've got to tell you, Many people in our world today who at least identify themselves as Christians, God knows their heart, but many people today do not like this passage. <laughs> and I think you'll understand as we get into it, if we get into it honestly. Verse 16, Paul starts this section by saying, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Greek word translated ashamed here, Paul said, I'm not ashamed. That word is used 11 times in the New Testament and every single time the translators translate it the same way ashamed. It's just, that's what it means. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. So it carries the idea of not really wanting to be identified with someone or not really wanting to be identified with something 
maybe along with it, the feelings with of, of maybe timidity and fear and embarrassment. A lot of people who are ashamed feel those kind of feelings. People can be ashamed when they think they might be rejected or ridiculed or mocked or maybe falsely accused because they're identified with someone or something that other people don't like. Paul just boldly states, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> now, let me just stop right here and ask you a tough question. Can you remember, has there ever been a time in your life when you were, I'll make it gentle for you, when you were at least tempted not to share the gospel or not to talk about Jesus because you had a pretty strong hunch that it wouldn't be received very well? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Most of us have had to deal with that temptation more than once. Why? We don't like being rejected. It's no fun, is it? We don't want people to think we're offensive. We don't want to turn people off. We don't want them to think that we might be some kind of religious nut, right? You know, so, so we're tempted just to keep silent. And there are lots of forces out there that want to encourage that kind of an attitude on our part. <laughs> Well, if Paul was ever tempted that way, it seems that he had long since learned how to overcome that temptation. God had enabled him to conquer those fears years before this. Now, that doesn't mean everybody received his message well. You know, everybody wasn't delighted to hear what Paul had to say. He had often, you know this, he'd been run out of town. He'd been beaten up. He'd been called a troublemaker. He'd been thrown in jail. He had been stoned. He had been abandoned. You name it. He's been through the grinder. Still, He's not ashamed of the gospel. Now listen carefully, guys. Barring a wonderful supernatural spiritual awakening in America, and of course I'm praying for that, and I hope you're praying for that too, but so far we don't see any signs of it, I don't think, not really. I think we need to expect to see an increasingly open animosity toward Christians here in our own country in America. It's already started. You know that. You've heard some of the news reports. If we're going to stand, first of all, we need to know what the Bible says. We need to be really good students of God's Word. And we need to know that the Bible really is God's Word. We need to know why we believe what we believe. If we're wimpy about this stuff, there's no way we're going to stand. And we need to be doing some praying up front in advance, that when the time comes for us to be tempted to be ashamed, that we'll be able to say with Paul, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to stand firm. I don't care if you mock me. I don't care if you try to hurt me. I don't care if you try to shut me up. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And yes, what Paul says he's not ashamed of is the gospel. You're probably familiar with the word gospel. The Greek word is euangelion. literally means good news. And in the New Testament, it always refers to the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son, has come into the world. And he never once yielded to our enemy Satan. He never sinned at all. He gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. He overthrew Satan's kingdom, conquered sin, conquered hell, conquered the grave. And he, he can offer us, because of what he's done on the cross, forgiveness of sins. He can offer us his own righteousness and salvation as a gift. All we need to do is admit our sins, confess our sins, 
repent of our sins and trust him as Lord of our lives. Very simple. And so Paul says, hey, that's why I'm not ashamed of it, because of what it is. It's the power of God to salvation. So pagans, Jews, they all may ridicule Paul. But for anyone, pagan or Jew, who will take long enough to listen and receive the truth, it's powerful. It's going to change their lives forever, and ours too. It saves us from the horrific consequences of sin. Sin always leads to death and pain and destruction. A little bit later in this book, Paul wrote, the wages of sin is, you fill in the blank, death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now look at verse 18. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Greek word for wrath is orge. It's used 36 times in the New Testament. 31 of those times it's translated wrath. In ancient Greek, it was used to refer to rulers who administered justice and avenged injustice. Now, it's very common today for people to not want to hear anything about the wrath of God. For that reason, it's also common for some preachers and teachers to rarely or never mention it at all. Very sad. The Bible clearly teaches that one of the characteristics of God is His wrath. God's wrath is part of His righteous character. In Romans chapter 2, just a little bit after these verses, Paul wrote, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up what? Wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath is part of God's righteousness. We need to understand that. The ultimate reason that God finally does pour out His wrath is the rejection of Jesus, God's Son. Jesus Himself said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, listen now, but the wrath of God remains on Him. So God's wrath is not unrighteous. The truth is it's necessary for His righteous judgment of the world. Romans 3, verse 5, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, Paul said, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? The necessity for the righteous judgment of God makes God's wrath a necessary part of His righteousness, guys. We mustn't miss this. We need to try our best to internalize this. Jesus taught a parable that might help us appreciate the significance of the wrath of God. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants. 
and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? <laughs> These people that were listening to Jesus were enraged by this point. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. You see, Jesus help these people see the need for God's wrath. Nathan helped David appreciate the need for God's wrath. You remember this? And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he'd bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him, with his children, used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Well, David is reacting just like those people reacted to Jesus' parable. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. He's furious. He's enraged. And because of this parable, David saw the need for God's wrath against David's own sin. Now, because of David's repentance, God spared him much of that wrath, although David certainly did suffer what we might call consequential wrath. There are other real-life illustrations that can help us realize the need for the wrath of God. Uh, here's one, for example. There was a certain man who was raised up to power in a nation that had found itself in a very difficult situation economically, very depressed. And many of the people of that country thought he would be the one to bring them out of their financial depression and lead them to greatness as a nation. So they gave him great power and authority. But as time went on, he began to see large groups of people as threats to his power. And he decided they were unworthy of life. And so he systematically and brutally began to put them to death. And eventually, over a period of time, he was responsible for the horrific deaths of tens of millions of innocent people. It's hard for us to grasp this, isn't it? And some of you right now are thinking, Adolf Hitler, yeah? Or maybe Joseph Stalin, mm-hmm. Or maybe Mao Zedong in China, same kind of story. Maybe even Pol Pot, maybe a slightly lower number of deaths, but still more than our, we can conceive, uh, or, or Idi Amin or the North Korean leaders, you know, they, they, many, many leaders have done this kind of stuff. Now, I want to ask you, is there a need for justice for men like these? Of course there is. And that justice comes in the form of the wrath of God. There are rebellious, unrepentant people in this world who refuse God's offer of salvation. When God simply withholds his blessings from those people, people who reject his son, Jesus, all that's left for them is his wrath. Imagine there are two men. One's older, kind, loving, and wealthy. And one is younger and impoverished. 
Suppose the older man were to take responsibility for the younger man. And the older man just lavishes his love on that younger man, providing him means to have many, many blessings, many of the good things of life. The truth is the young man owes everything he has to the older man, everything. Now suppose that older man said to the younger man, look, all I ask is that you show me some gratitude and appreciation and love. And suppose the younger man refuses. He insists, no, 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 I've made this on my own. And he doesn't give thanks to the older man. He doesn't love the older man. He basically ignores the older man. Let me ask you, would it be just for the older man to say, okay, we need to stop this and withdraw the blessings? To the extent that any of us enjoy any comfort, think about this, or any blessing, it's because God is good. Do we understand this? Jesus said he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good. He blesses all of us in many, many different ways. But of course, there are people who reject him. People think they're responsible for their own blessings. They're fools. And when God withdraws his hand of blessing, it results in utter pain and darkness and destruction. And that's what he does. One reason that some people struggle with the truth about God's wrath is that we, what we've done is we've allowed ourselves to be deceived about how deadly and horrific and destructive sin really is. We can convince ourselves that it's really no big deal. And many of us down in our hearts really have a struggle here. We think this kind of seems trivial to us. It's because we are living in fleshly fallen bodies. Listen, guys, before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, there was no death, none. There was no sickness. There was no pain, no, no consequence of sin. Even the animals lived in harmony. And then after Adam sinned, everything changed. A curse came upon the entire universe. Everything started dying. Animals were changed into predators and prey. Sin led to a violent, pain-filled, death-filled world. And that's where we live. Now, God had a solution. He knew this was going to happen, and he had a solution to this horrific sin problem. And it's Jesus, of course, and it's death for us on the cross. He took that curse. He became a curse for us. And by trusting Jesus, we can be set free of the curse and made fit to have eternal, incorruptible bodies when he comes back. When he comes back, he's going to bind Satan and tie him away, and, and he's going to reign in a new kingdom that will remind us of Eden. The curse is going to be lifted. The Bible says the, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, just like in Eden. But listen, those who refuse God's solution, those who choose sin and reject Christ, will have all of God's blessings removed, and all that's left is the wrath of God against sin and those who choose to live in it. We all despise unjust human judges, don't we? I mean, if we hear of someone or if we knew that someone was guilty of murder or maybe assault and battery or robbery or some other terrible crime and a human judge let him go free, we'd be justifiably shocked and indignant and, and angry, wouldn't we? We want our human judges to be just. Well, God is more just than any human judge could ever be. God is perfect in justice. One of the problems we have is this messed up thinking that our particular sins are actually kind of minor. 
kind of trivial. If we could just see sin from God's perspective, we'd realize that no sin is trivial to Him. No sin is minor to Him. All sin is an assault on God Himself. All sin is rebellion against the Creator God. It's disobedience to God. It's a statement that I reject God's truth. I reject God's command. At the moment of sin, I'm trying to be my own little God. So it's right that, as he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word translated ungodliness here means an absence of reverence toward God, refusal to honor and worship God as the true God. The word unrighteousness implies unjust and sinful. So Paul's telling us here that there are ungodly, sinful men, men who do not want to acknowledge the glory and power and holiness of God, and they're guilty of suppressing the truth. They're holding back the truth. They're covering up the truth. That's what they're doing, he says. Please remember this. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. I don't get to decide what's true for me. Something's either true or it's false. If it's true for you, it's true for me. But people who are in rebellion against God do not like the truth. So they'll change up the words and say, well, maybe true for you, true for me, not true for me, maybe true for me, not true for you. That's nonsense. Truth is what corresponds to reality. And God's all about the truth. In the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, this is the night before his crucifixion, he asked his father to sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. And then he added, your word is truth. God's interested in truth. And just a very few minutes before that, Jesus had said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. During that same evening, three different times, he referred to the Holy Spirit as a spirit of truth. A spirit of truth. On another occasion, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Oh, God's big on the truth. God calls himself the God of truth in his word. So in the Bible, God reveals to us the truth about himself, about Jesus, about creation, the truth about us, the truth about sin, the truth about repentance, the truth about faith, the truth about his purposes and last things. And he reveals a lot of the truth about himself, even in his creation. We're going to get to that in this series. But ungodly, unrighteous men don't like it. So they suppress it. Now listen, guys. One thing we as Christians must be very, very alert to as followers of Christ, especially in these days, is when others are suppressing the truth. And as we work our way through this passage, we're going to learn a lot more about what this means. But I'm going to end this first study right here by simply asking you, have you trained yourself to recognize it when men are suppressing the truth? This is serious, guys, because often they're very slick. They may have some degrees after their names. They may have lots of Twitter followers. They may sound very erudite and sophisticated. 
They may use lots of difficult vocabulary words, like erudite. <laughs> they may smile a lot. They may act very sweet and loving. But we must not be deceived by a thin veneer, a polish that's just on the surface. Ungodly, unrighteous men are suppressing God's truth. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. We need to pray for the ability to recognize that problem quickly. Well, Paul's got a lot more to say in these verses. It's strong, and I'm eager to get into it. It certainly relates to America in 2021. Paul did not sugarcoat this, and neither should we. And God willing, we'll pick it up here next time, so let's pray. Father, I'm praying for whoever's watching this video right now and for myself that we will internalize the powerful truth in this passage of Scripture. We know, Lord, that you have given us a gospel that is powerful for salvation to everyone who will believe. So please, Father, help us to be courageous and never be ashamed of a little ridicule, afraid of a little ridicule or afraid of a little uh, opposition or afraid of rejection. Help us never to be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to be courageous. We want to be loving and gracious and wise. But we don't want to be fearful. We don't want to be cowardly. We don't want to be timid. We don't want to be wishy-washy. We don't want to be wimpy, Lord. And we're living in a time when we're tempted to be that way. Father, thank you that you've given us the gospel as a, as a powerful, powerful thing that changes our lives forever because of Jesus. Lord, we also know that your wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. Lord, many of us have struggled some with your wrath. Sometimes it seems to us like your wrath is too much or too intense or too strong or unbalanced or something like that. Lord, we get ourselves all confused because we don't realize the seriousness of sin. We don't realize the horror of sin. Lord, so help us to see sin more like you see sin and to realize that your wrath is an important part of your righteous character. And Lord, help us to realize it's real. We know there are people around us who would like to just sweep it under the rug and pretend that they can sin and, and it's no big deal and you're going to accept them and, and you're going to understand and their situation is different and we, we can excuse and we can rationalize and on and on and on we go. And Lord, we know that that's a road to destruction. So please help us to, to be honest with you about our sin, to confess sin quickly. And help us to help others see the seriousness of sin in our culture and in their lives. Lord, we need you. We're in trouble in this country, Lord. You know that. We're in big trouble. And Lord, we pray for mercy. We pray for a revival, awakening. But Lord, we know that men have to repent. We pray you to raise up godly men and women across this country to stand firm on your truth, to proclaim your truth with courage, to stand against politicians who are abusing your truth, who are embracing socialism and, and critical theory and embracing abortion and embracing a sexual revolution that's anathema and disgusting to you. Lord, help us to stand firm against this stuff and never, ever compromise your truth. We need you, Lord, to give us wisdom and discernment and leadership more than ever before. Help us to keep our eyes on you and teach us as we work through this incredibly powerful passage that's so relevant for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.